Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, November 9th, 2023, the only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The G7 presses for Gaza humanitarian pauses, but stops short of a ceasefire. Rishi Sunak affirms a pro-Palestine rally could proceed after law enforcement talks. Ukraine admits to killing a pro-Russian politician in a car bombing. Ohioans enshrine abortion in the state constitution amid national Democratic Party wins. While Danica Rome becomes Virginia's first transgender state legislator. Robert Kennedy Jr. leads Biden and Trump among younger voters in a new poll. The House votes to censure Rashida Tlaib over her criticism of Israel. Colombia demands the release of soccer star Luis Diaz's kidnapped father. The U.S. Supreme Court hears a case over gun ownership by domestic abusers. And a climate study suggests that 2023 will be the hottest of the last 125,000 years. The G7 presses for humanitarian pauses in Gaza, but not a ceasefire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Guardian, Sky News, and Al Jazeera. As the death toll in Gaza surpassed 10,000 earlier this week, the G7, a forum of Western nations including the U.S. and U.K., has called for, quote, humanitarian pauses in the fighting between Israel and Hamas, but not for a ceasefire. The pauses are intended to allow humanitarian aid to enter Gaza and civilians to flee dangerous areas, but would not end hostilities between the two parties. Foreign ministers present at the political summit affirmed Israel's right to defend itself in the wake of Hamas's surprise attack against Israel last month, but emphasized the need to comply with international law during the conflict. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken rejected calls for a ceasefire, citing the hostages taken by Hamas and the necessity of preventing another attack. Blinken declarified that he did not believe that Israel should reoccupy the Gaza Strip, saying instead that at the end of the conflict there must be a, quote, transition period after Hamas was dislodged. British Foreign Minister James Cleverly said that Gaza should be eventually administered by a, quote, peace-loving Palestinian leadership. Meanwhile, Israel's defense minister said that Israeli forces had entered, quote, the heart of Gaza City, and Hamas's local political leader, Yahya Sinwar, is, quote, surrounded in his bunker. Israel also claimed that it had killed Hamas's head of weapons, Nona Abu Zina. But none of these claims have been verified by independent or Palestinian sources, and Israeli forces are still likely concentrated on the outskirts of Gaza City. An Israeli military official said, quote, Every day and every hour the forces are killing militants, exposing tunnels and destroying weapons and continuing onward to enemy centers. Hamas has claimed that it has killed scores of advancing Israeli troops as Israeli tanks continue to encircle Gaza City. The Gaza Health Ministry reported that at least 10,569 people have been killed in Gaza, including 4,324 children, with over 200 being killed in the last 24 hours as of Wednesday. Another 2,500 people are also reported missing, including over 1,300 children, as medical supplies, food, and fuel are still in short supply. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on our first story and for giving us the update on the situation in the Middle East. We're going to start off our first round of spins with a pro-Israeli narrative provided by the Times of Israel. While images of the destruction in Gaza and the high number of casualties as a result of Israeli airstrikes may be distressing, they need to be put in the context of other wars. During World War II, the Allies killed 37,000 Germans during one aerial bombardment, most of whom were civilians. 
Wars are inevitably destructive, and this one was started by Hamas. Israel was forced to respond to a heinous terror attack, and justice can only be served when Hamas's leadership has been dismantled. The pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. While Hamas's attack on Israel cannot be condoned, that does not justify Israel's brutal war on Gaza in which it has killed thousands of Palestinian civilians, the vast majority of whom have no affiliation with Hamas. This collective punishment on the Palestinians and the international community must apply more pressure on Israel to spare Palestinian lives. 40% of casualties being children is not a normal part of war, but rather an act of genocide. And we're going to wrap up our narrative spins with a nerd narrative provided by our friends in the Metaculous Prediction community. They believe that there's a 2% chance that Israel will join the EU before 2050. I don't think that there's a chance. No, I don't think so either. I don't, that they, I don't think that they think that there's a chance. I think that they were like, come up with something positive. Yeah. We're like, okay, there's a 2% chance that they'll join by 30 years from now. Will that, will that make you happy for the time being? Okay, we'll, we'll put that down. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak states that a pro-Palestine rally may proceed on Armistice Day. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Sky News, Independent, and The Telegraph. After describing the event as, quote, disrespectful and summoning the Metropolitan Police Commissioner to discuss safety concerns, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak stated Wednesday that those who planned to hold a pro-Palestine rally in London on Saturday had the, quote, right to peacefully protest. Metropolitan Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley argued that from a legal standpoint, there was no mechanism to ban a gathering, a static protest, adding that people should be very reassured that we're going to keep this away from the remembrance and armistice events. In response, Sunak had said that his job was now to hold him accountable for that promise. Following his meeting with Rowley on Downing Street, however, the Prime Minister said this weekend people around the UK will come together in quiet reflection to remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice for this country. He continued by clarifying that part of that freedom is the right to peacefully protest, even if we disagree with them. The pro-Palestine protest is scheduled to start at 12.45 p.m. local time, Saturday at Marble Arch, and end at the U.S. Embassy in southwest London which is roughly two miles from the Cenotaph, where Armistice Day events will be held Sunday. While Sunak said there remains the risk of those who seek to divide society using this weekend as a platform to do so, he noted that Rowley committed the protest under constant review. While Rowley claimed the pro-Palestine organizers have some complete willingness to stay away from the Cenotaph and White Hall and have no intention of disrupting the nation's remembrance events, he added, should this change, We've been clear we will use powers and conditions available to us to protect locations and events of national importance at all costs. Leader of the opposition party, Sir Keir Starmer, accused Sunak of picking a fight with the police, arguing that the Home Secretary is the figure who must be held accountable. Adam, thank you for laying those facts out for us. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from The Telegraph. A paramount Western value is that dissenting voices can be heard. This can be accomplished in the UK while also maintaining public order. In the case of Armistice Day weekend, many diverse voices will be heard, but the different events will take place on different days and in different locations. The security situation is well in hand. That's going to be countered with an establishment critical narrative provided by LBC. 
The British public has spoken out against what they see as the desecration of a day meant to celebrate fallen British soldiers. Couple that with growing fears of rogue bad actors using the conflict to wreak havoc on society, it would be in the interest of public safety to simply keep Armistice Day as it's traditionally been and push the pro-Palestine march to a less controversial date. Sunak, legal authorities, and the event organizers should move this event and are wrong not to do so. It's like having the Hanukkah parade and the Christmas parade on the same day. Very much like that, Adam. I remember when they did that that one year. Remember that? No, Eric, I don't remember that. <laughs> That's there what I was go. waiting on. <laughs> this payback for last week. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ukraine admits killing a pro-Russia politician in a car bomb. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Politico, New York Times, and the Lieber Institute at West Point. Ukraine on Wednesday admitted to carrying out a car bombing of a pro-Russia lawmaker in the occupied Luhansk region, one of four regions Russia claimed to have annexed last year. Mikhail Filipinenko has been engaged in Luhansk's pro-Russian separatist movement since 2014 and went on to be a top commander in the breakaway region's military. In September, he was elected to the Russia-backed government of the region. His son told local news that Filipinenko was killed after a, quote, explosive device detonated in his car on Wednesday. In a rare move, Ukraine's military intelligence directorate, also known as GUR, immediately claimed responsibility for the attack. A GUR statement that took responsibility claimed Filipinenko was, quote, involved in the organization of torture camps in the occupied territories of the Luhansk region. It, it further claimed Filipinenko himself personally brutally tortured people. No evidence was provided for the allegations. Ukraine is suspected of being behind a number of political assassinations, including Daria Dugina, the daughter of a key ally to Russian President Vladimir Putin, as well as a number of pro-Russia politicians in Russian-held regions of Ukraine. However, Ukraine did not claim those attacks. In claiming Wednesday's attack, the Ukrainian GUR left no doubt as to who was responsible. Quote, all war criminals will be punished, GUR said. Assassination itself is considered a war crime by the standards of today's internationally accepted rules of war. Thanks for the facts on that story, Eric. We're going to start our spins with a pro-Ukraine narrative provided by Ukranska Pravda. Ukraine's GUR was responsible for the killing of Mikhail Filipinenko. Not only did he facilitate Russia's torture camps, but he was also personally abusing prisoners. Ukraine will go after anyone who is a traitor and collaborates with the enemy. The Lieber Institute at West Point provides an establishment critical narrative for this story. Under the standards of international law on war, committing assassinations is widely considered a war crime. Ukraine's actions in the case of Mikhail Filipinenko, as well as other suspected assassinations, are clearly beyond the scope of the law and should be condemned. And the nerds have an opinion. They think, again, that there's a 2% chance that there will be a deadly clash between the U.S. and Russian armed forces before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Eric, when I think about an assassination, I understand that assassinations are bad. All killing is bad. An assassination is more of a targeted attack. It's going to kill the least amount of people, right? And specifically, they just want to kill one person. I believe I believe so, yeah. I mean, it's more yeah, like the word I, assassination is bad, but it seems like a more of a targeted attack would kill the least, least amount of civilians and innocents. Right, right. 
So, so what's your point? So why are they so mad? I don't know. I mean, it's like uh, you know, it's it's less collateral damage when you kill that one person. Yes. Yeah, so why are the big? So why are the international law? Of, yeah. We gotta rewrite what? the international law of war. Archie, you don't kill them with one blow, Archie. Come on, you know better. Oh, for Christ's sakes, Edith, would you get off my case already? <laughs> Voters in Ohio have passed an abortion rights amendment. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Ohio Capital Journal, CBS, New York Times, and NPR Online News. Following a vote on Tuesday, Ohio has become the seventh U.S. state where voters approved of protecting abortion since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. As early as Wednesday, with more than 99 of the precincts reporting, Ohio voters had passed the Issue 1 constitutional amendment with 56.35% support, or 2.14 million voters. Brought by several reproductive rights advocacy groups, the amendment will enshrine abortion, contraception, fertility treatment, miscarriage care, and continuing one's own pregnancy into the Ohio State Constitution. Under the amendment, the state can ban abortion after viability, except when it's considered necessary to protect the life and health of the mother. The patient's doctor is empowered to determine if the fetus is viable. Previously, ballot measures to deny abortion rights to constituents were voted down in Kentucky and Kansas. Attempts to codify abortion rights next year are being planned for Arizona, South Dakota, Missouri, and Florida. Elsewhere Tuesday, Democrats in Virginia gained control of the state legislature, which will probably prevent passage of a law endorsed by Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin to prohibit abortion after 15 weeks. Adam, thank you for presenting the facts. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. This is not what the voters of Ohio truly want. But outside advocacy groups poured millions into the state to defeat pro-life voices. This bill goes much further than even Roe v. Wade did. The pro-choice side dares to call opponents of this bill extremists, but they're the ones supporting unethical choices. This movement must be stopped before spreading to other states. And Republican narratives are typically followed up with Democratic narratives, and we've got one here provided by Axios. Not only is this what the people of Ohio want, but Ohioans basically voted in favor of it twice, because Republicans in August attempted to raise the threshold for necessary support to pass this amendment and they lost that special election. Securing women's bodily autonomy will rightly spread from state to state because the U.S. is a democracy, where the government shouldn't control a woman's right to choose. The nerds from Metaculus give us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before 2030. Danica Rome has been elected Virginia's first trans senator. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Washington Post, ABC 27, Manassas, Yahoo News, and Virginia Mercury. Democrat Danica Rome narrowly defeated Republican challenger Bill Wolf on Tuesday to secure a seat in the Virginia State Senate, becoming the state's first transgender state senator and the second trans person to serve in any state senate in the U.S. Rome, whose campaign featured key transgender and LGBTQ plus issues, won slightly over 50 percent of the vote. Meanwhile, Woof, a former Fairfax County police detective endorsed by Governor Glenn Youngkin, campaigned on banning transgender athletes from competing against students of the opposite biological sex. 
Rome also focused on issues such as gun control, health care, and other transportation projects, while Wolf campaigned on safety and school choice. The highly watched election saw Rome's campaign raise more than $2 million, while Wolf's raised just under $1.4 million, according to the Virginia Public Access Project. Rome rose to prominence in 2017 by becoming Virginia's first openly transgender lawmaker elected to state house. The Democrat has served in the House for the last six years and joins Delaware State Senator Sarah McBride as this nation's second openly trans state senator. Rome's victory came amid a wave of Democratic victory, as Democrats appeared to have defended their majority in the state Senate while closing in on retaking the lower chamber. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that story. We're going to start with a left narrative provided by the Pink News. Danica Rome made history for a second time on Tuesday night to become Virginia's first openly transgender state senator. Rome had to overcome a campaign riddled with transphobia, yet she prevailed in a victory for the LGBTQ community and all defenders of equality. She showed that hate will not win in Virginia, and she will continue to fight for all of her constituents regardless of their identity. The right narrative comes from The Federalist. As Virginia, like much of the country, heads down a path of woke ideology, it's no surprise that those performing to the doctrine are allowed to lead the way. Time will tell if Danica Rome has anything to offer other than diversity, but if not, the Democrat may receive backlash from the American public as it's forced to toe the line against their personal beliefs. In a recent poll, Robert Kennedy Jr. leads Trump and Biden among young Americans in swing states. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, New York Times, Rolling Stone, New York Post, Yahoo News, and BBC News. In a new poll by the New York Times and Siena College has found that among registered young voters, independent U.S. presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. holds greater electoral support in swing states than former President Donald Trump and current President Joe Biden. Overall polling taken from October 22nd to November 3rd found that 24% of the 3,662 respondents across six states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, were leaning towards Kennedy, compared to 33% in favor of Biden and 35% in favor of Trump. 34% of the 18- to 29-year-olds claimed that they were leading towards Kennedy a five-point lead over Trump and a four-point lead over Biden. Kennedy, 31%, also held a one-point lead over both Trump and Biden within the age 30 to 44 category. In total, for voters under 45 within the six states, Kennedy sat 32%, followed by Biden at 30% and Trump at 29%. The results coincided with a study conducted by Quinnipiac University where Kennedy, at 38%, led Biden at 32%, and Trump at 27%, among respondents aged between 18 to 36. Of those who supported Kennedy, 46% claimed that they would definitely or probably support Trump in a two-way race against Biden, while 39% offered support to the current president. Polling shows Trump to be ahead of Biden within five out of the six of the battleground states, while also finding that, despite leading Biden, the former president would sit eight points behind a hypothetical, unnamed, generic Democratic nominee in the 2024 election. Last month, Kennedy announced his intention to run as an independent candidate, having previously sought to claim the Democratic nomination off of incumbent candidate Joe Biden. 
Adam, thanks for laying out the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from MSNBC. Kennedy is a clear favorite for voters who lack any appetite for either Trump or Biden. Holding the dynastic name and its associated glory, America's polarized environment has become the perfect opportunity for Kennedy to present himself as the rightful beneficiary of the alternative vote against the establishment parties. While it's unlikely that strong polling will transform into real votes in 2024, the surprising strength of his campaign highlights the discontent many hold towards the current state of the political system. And the Suffolk Journal is going to follow that up with a narrative B. Those who are showing polling support for Kennedy lack true support for the independent candidate. An outcast of his family dynasty, Kennedy merely holds current popularity due to his position as an independent rather than any agreement over his radical ideology. Holding a often dangerous belief system, there should be little worry within the Trump and Biden camps that support for Kennedy will grow any further than current data places the independent at. The nerds from Metaculus give us their narrative. They say there's a 1% chance that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. will be elected as the President of the United States of America in 2024. The House votes to censure Rashida Tlaib over an Israel criticism. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, BBC News, Politico, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and Fox News. The U.S. House of Representatives has voted 234 to 188 in favor of censuring Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat of Michigan, a three-term congresswoman, for her rhetoric about the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, particularly due to her frequent use of the, quote, from the river to the sea slogan. With 22 Democrats joining the vast majority of Republicans to support the resolution, the only Palestinian American in Congress was formally condemned for allegedly, quote, calling for the destruction of the state of Israel and dangerously promoting false narratives on Tuesday. Long a critic of the Israeli government, Tlaib came under bipartisan criticism after posting on social media a video that features the Palestinian rallying chant, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, in reference to the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Speaking on the House floor on Tuesday, Tlaib rejected allegations of anti-Semitism and claimed that her perspective was indispensable at this point in the conflict. She accused President Joe Biden of supporting, quote, the genocide of the Palestinian people last Friday, angering many of her party colleagues. A censure is a formal public repudiation, one step below expulsion from Congress. Tlaib is the 26th member of Congress to be censured, with the first occurring in 1832. In February this year, Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, was formally admonished, rather than censured, for her own criticisms of Israel. The largely symbolic punishment was introduced on Monday by first-term Representative Rich McCormick, Republican of Georgia, with a vote to kill the measure being defeated 213 to 208 the following day. Another resolution to censure Tlaib failed to advance to a vote last week. All right, Eric, thank you very much for the facts on that story. We're going to start this spinoff with an establishment critical narrative provided by Common Dreams. The House has clearly failed to identify the nuance between anti-Semitism and pro-Palestinian activism, with current events in the Middle East being accompanied by a plethora of polarizing hyperbole. Tlaib's comments have been distorted when in reality her criticism of Israel's behavior in Gaza and occupation of the West Bank should be of no surprise as her family members living in Palestinian territories experienced the Israeli occupation and disenfranchisement daily. The pro-establishment narrative comes from Washington Examiner. 
The only nuance that can be applied as a response to accusations against Tlaib is that her comments were, at best, anti-Israeli rather than specifically anti-Semitic. However, countless previous examples have shown she indeed has made anti-Semitic and pro-terrorist statements, routinely pushing misinformation in favor of her own ideology. Such dangerous rhetoric remains unfit with any channels of public office. And the nerds are going to wrap up this round of spins with a narrative they think that there's a 50% chance that the U.S. will give at least $3.12 billion in aid to Israel in the year 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Colombia demands the immediate release of soccer star Luis Diaz's kidnapped father. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, The Athletic, CNN, The City Paper Bogota, Daily Mail, and BBC News. The Colombian government has urged the ELN guerrilla group to release the kidnapped father of Liverpool winger Luis Diaz, with its chief negotiator, Adi Pontiano, stating on Tuesday that there were no more excuses for his continued abduction. This comes as the military has repositioned troops that were on the ground close to the border with Venezuela to search for Luis Manuel Diaz in the town of Barrancas, leaving that area free of any offensive operation and fulfilling the demanded security guarantees for the potential handover of the hostage. The ELN, or National Liberation Army, claimed in a statement issued on Monday that military operations in the undisclosed area were hindering the plan to quickly and safely release Diaz Sr., mentioning potential risks of incidents with official forces under that scenario. Luis Manuel Diaz was kidnapped at gunpoint on October 28th in the northeastern department of La Guajira, along with his wife Salinas Marolanda, who was released shortly after. Their car was intercepted by the guerrilla group, whose primary revenue comes from detaining civilians. The 26-year-old Colombian soccer player revealed an emotional plea for the release of his father in a T-shirt printed with the words, Freedom for Dad, written in Spanish under his jersey after he scored a late equalizer against Luton on Sunday. Established in 1964 to fight the Colombian state, the ELN is a guerrilla group in Colombia. Earlier this year, the two agreed to a bilateral six-month ceasefire that came into force on August 3rd as part of President Gustavo Petro's total peace strategy. Adam, thanks for laying out the facts. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A coming from Guardian. Though more than a week has passed since the rebel group announced their intent to unilaterally release Luis Manuel Diaz, the presence of government forces in the local area has delayed the plan due to increased risks to his safety. He will be promptly released when the situation allows. Liverpool Echo is going to follow that up with a narrative B. It's certain that the ELN leaders have expressed their willingness to release Luis Diaz's father as soon as possible, but their deeds must match their words. As time passes and his abduction persists, the situation becomes increasingly precarious for Luis Manuel Diaz. Additionally, the rebels must recognize that their actions have breached the ongoing peace process. Adam, if they continue uh, kicking around ideas, they're bound to score a good one, don't you think? I'm not even going to humor you with that one. That was horrible. How could you? You frightened me, Eric. You seriously frightened me. The Supreme Court hears a case over gun ownership by domestic abusers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, the Supreme Court blog, the Texas Tribune, Associated Press, and Reuters. 
On Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in the case of Texas man Zaki Rahimi, who is challenging a federal law that prohibits people who are the subject of a domestic violence restraining order from possessing guns. Rahimi is asking the Supreme Court to dismiss the charge against him based on its 2022 decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which instructed courts to uphold gun restrictions only if a tradition of such regulations exist in U.S. history. Rahimi's lawyer argued to the Supreme Court that there's no history of firearms bans or identical laws that would prevent Rahimi from possessing a gun. An appeals court in New Orleans struck down the 1994 firearms law that bans people such as Rahimi from possessing firearms. Rahimi, currently imprisoned, was accused of hitting his girlfriend, threatening to shoot her, and shooting at a bystander. He is also alleged to have committed several other shootings. U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Preliger, however, argued that the challenge to the law that prevents Rahimi from possessing a gun doesn't require a historical legislative twin and is in line with the U.S. history of keeping dangerous people from owning weapons. Some reporters characterized the questioning from both liberal and conservative justices as skeptical of Rahimi's case, but a final decision isn't expected to be announced until June 2024. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. Our spins are going to start with a left narrative provided by Slate. The Bruin ruling and the appeals court ruling in favor of Rahimi are what happens when courts subscribe to unfettered originalism. There were no protective orders against domestic abusers when the Second Amendment was written. Luckily, there seems to be enough justices willing to keep the country safe. The right narrative comes from the Federalist. The Second Amendment explicitly spells out the rare instances where it's legal to limit gun possession. The law in question, in this case, is too broad and the risk of mistakenly taking guns away from innocent people is too great to let the statute stand. Time and again, we find out the hard way that gun restrictions don't impact criminals who, by their nature, don't adhere to laws. And the Metaculous Prediction community believed that there is a 0.2% chance that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution will be amended or repealed before 2025. In our final story today, European scientists believe that the year 2023 is going to be the hottest in the last 125,000 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, DW.com, and The Straits Times. Following October's record temperatures, the EU's Copernicus Climate Change Services, or the C3S, said Wednesday that 2023 is virtually certain to be the hottest year in 125,000 years, with last month setting a new October record for the same period by 0.4 degrees Celsius. The Climate Service said the number of days breaking the significant 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold has also reached a new high, with July likely having the hottest month in 120,000 years, and September breaking the previous record by 0.5 degrees Celsius. What makes this year likely to be the hottest in 125,000 years is that October was 1.7 degrees Celsius warmer than the estimated average for the pre-industrial era October. The previous record was broken in 2016, which, like this year, was another El Nino year, which is a weather pattern that warms the surface waters in the eastern Pacific Ocean, causing heat to rise. Given that C3S's data records go back to 1940, the agency uses readings from sources such as ice cores, tree rings, and coral deposits to collect longer-term data. 
University of Pennsylvania climate scientist Michael Mann warns that El Nino years add to the steady ramp of human-caused warming. This year, the record warming has been attributed to floods in Libya, heat waves in South America, and Canada's worst wildfire season on file. Adam, thanks for laying the facts out. The first spin for this story is Narrative A, and it comes from time. The world has sadly come to a point where watching record heat is becoming normal and is expected to continue each year. What leaders should be focused on now are the people and places this fossil fuel-caused global warming is destroying. Beyond our duty to save people's lives, it will actually be cheaper in the long run to stop burning fossil fuels than to continue, as the latter only raises the cost of life and life-saving. And Fox News also has a narrative B. Most people recognize that climate is changing. One of the differences of opinions is over whether fossil fuels have created more harm than good in the grand scheme of things. Burning fossil fuels has helped develop the technology that has actually lessened weather-related deaths by a huge margin. As the Earth warms, we will need that technology to build the infrastructure necessary to remain safer from the elements than we were before the industrial boom. Our final nerd narrative being provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. It says that there's a 20% chance that there will be a five-year period with an average global temperature more than 3.6 degrees Celsius warmer than NASA's 1861 to 1880 baseline before 2100. Now listen, Adam, I know this is a hot topic, but I, I, I have faith that they're going to cook up some great ideas to help solve these problems. Oh my gosh, Eric, stop it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, November 9th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. Then for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at verity.news. And download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.